Okay, hi and welcome to episode 83 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast and today I have Dr. Craig Twist. Hi Craig, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Lon. How are you? Uh, yeah, it's good. Well, it's a Friday, as we were just discussing whilst I was pressing all the wrong buttons and turning off <laughs> Skype and so on. But um, um, it, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting one today. Um, I'll explain why in a minute um, I wanted to get you on. But for folks that may not know uh, who Dr. Craig Twist is, perhaps you could give us a quick introduction to yourself and what you're up to. Yeah, um, I'm currently based at the University of Chester, I've been here for about 12 years now. Um, my research interest is predominantly intermittent sports, but I do have a broad interest across um, a number of sports, having worked with endurance sports as well. So, uh, And my main interest really is looking at training load, uh, and then obviously sort of recovery and monitoring of athletes. And we've done a lot of work, the research group that I lead here at Chester now is predominantly looking at that. A lot in rugby, um, but as I say, I'm, I'm sort of quite open to just sort of the broader aspects of uh, monitoring and performance. Great. And I, um, I mean, it's quite, quite interesting how my topics have evolved over the last couple of years of doing this. Um, I mean, my background, as you may know, is um, S&C, uh, then became a physiologist, and then um, performance nutrition became my, my focus, which is still my my personal practice and my own research, etc., is primarily in applied performance nutrition. But as I constantly mention to my students and, and to the listeners, um, one thing about nutrition, performance nutrition, sports nutrition, is it's not just about nutrition. You need to understand all sorts of things in order to be an effective performance nutritionist. And the same would go, I think, for other um, specialties within the sports science umbrella, uh, whether you're a physiologist, whether you're um, a sports psychologist, um, a coach, you know, the various kinds of coaches, one needs to understand uh, not just the sport um, or the goals that our athletes have, but also the underlying uh, physiology and um, various parameters with, within that that helps us um, understand how our role as our own respective practitioner um, would play in, in their outcomes and things like the relevance of what we have and the impact of our interventions and, and so on. And I constantly talk about, you know, t the sort of the practitioner's toolbox and, you know, whether it's nutrition, whether it's sub-disciplines within nutrition like um, carbohydrate periodization, training low, training high supplementation um, blah 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 um, these are all ways of us playing a role in manipulating positively and negatively the outcome of the athlete and of course there's many people involved in this process whether it's the coach um, doctors sometimes of course um, uh, fitness staff um, there's all sorts of, of stuff going on and we've explored lots of these different topics throughout the podcast and um, I've also recently had Greg Haff on to further explore um, the role and relevance of periodization in, in the applied concept um, and we also got into that with Dr. Anthony Turner some time ago as well and um, it got me thinking um, you know this stuff about why we do things like periodization, why nutrition is important not just for performance but also for recovery but what a lot of people do is is they will read this stuff hopefully they'll read it from quality journals um, and you can understand all the science about what causes fatigue uh, the scientific components of recovery you know the really quite complex um, um, sort of field of periodization and so on but not a lot of people have an understanding of how to individualize that and bring it into a real world context and that's why I wanted to talk to you because you have a lot of experience in the actual monitoring it's that sort of um, bringing you know the science into the real world and understanding what an individual's actual situation is so that we can make better and more informed decisions um, so maybe we could start off what we're going to discuss, which will loosely be monitoring fatigue and recovery, <clears throat> mainly in intermittent sports. As you said in your introduction, rugby is a main area for you. It's also where I've spent most of my professional life as a 
sports nutritionist in um, in rugby. Um, but for listeners that live all over the world, um, firstly, uh, um, we're, we're not just going to talk about rugby. We're going to talk about intermittent sports of various sorts. But um, of course, a lot of people will not be necessarily familiar with the differences between rugby league um, and rugby union. And I know that Graham Close is listening, and he's going to want to hear <laughs> <laughs> hear a difference. And then we'll get into this whole monitoring fatigue thing. So, um, I mean, w- what got you in? into this and why rugby particularly yeah I, I see my sort of job I two sort of hats that were really I'm, I'm a research scientist so I, I obviously you know I'm involved in in that side of the job um, but I'm also my background is predominantly sort of in um, as an applied practitioner um, and what I try and do is I still try and work within those two sort of sort of boundaries if you like the, the difficult part as you describe is, is the overlap between the two. So you're trying to take good science, you know, and the rigorous aspects that we take to that, uh, and then apply it in a real world. And and as we all know, that there are real challenges when we get into that real world of trying to be as rigorous as you want to be. Um, so I, I try to work through that, and I teach that to my students as well. Is that you know, it's it's one thing understanding the science as you described it, but and you need to go out and understand what people are like and be able to work with people. Um, but then it's that middle ground and pulling it all together. So f- for me, it really started that I, I was an applied practitioner. You mentioned Graham. Um, I know he's mentioned this on Twitter already, but we, <laughs> yeah. I toured with Graham. Uh, I was, it was my first role really in sort of applied sports science. I've then worked across a number of in professional rugby and sort of uh, with governing bodies and with other sports as well. Um, but my interest really has sort of been trying to help coaches, athletes um, understand the sort of scientific aspect, particularly about monitoring, because it's, it's a huge part of what we see now in, in most sports. Um, sometimes I think we go a little bit too far, maybe we can get into that later on, is that we the science starts to drive things too much. And I, I talk about, it as a, you know, we've all got different drivers. Um, so from a, an academic point of view, we've got things like REF, that really pushes us in terms of you know publications and sometimes I think with that we then lose sight of the applied part yeah. uh, which again you know they need to be monitored we need to sort of manage these athletes well through the process that they're going through but we need to be realistic and pragmatic in what we do and um, so as I say my challenge really is as I've sort of taken it that I am interested in the research and you know I, I supervise students I'm, it's a it's a part of my job, but I'm a realist and know that you know what I really like is the sort of trying to bring it together and fill in that overlap between the two. And um, so that's where I've sort of been working. In terms of the sports that I'm interested in, um, in particularly rugby, and you, you mentioned the differences between the codes. Uh, we've got differences in terms of the movements, the characteristics that are involved that obviously that we're interested in. And then that has an impact in terms of fatigue and, and how those athletes recover, either acutely or more chronically, in terms of, and, and the training that they do is, it is slightly different um, in terms of um, what they're expected to do on the field. So it's all around understanding those aspects and then being able to apply the right tools, if you like, to monitor them. So, and you know, I think, I think rugby is. Um, I mean, it's a, It's not just a fascinating um, sport to study because there's so many components to it. I mean, it's obviously I'm biased, but it's a great sport to watch. <laughs> um, but it's not necessarily a sport that everyone around the world's familiar with. Um, and um, and you know, most of our listeners, of course, are all over the world I mean, yeah. in countries that don't even play rugby because they're too scared. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but perhaps you could just give us a um, bit of a, a, an overview as to what, I mean, we use the term intermittent sports, so yeah. maybe we should define what we mean by intermittent sports, and then maybe just quickly give us an overview of how rugby fits into that, but how we might also um, relate that to you know, the more generalised concept of intermittent sports. Yeah, I mean, if, if we take the two codes, then they're referred to as intermittent sports. And what we mean by that is these are um, low intent, predominantly low intensity, but interspersed with periods of high intensity activity. That high intensity activity is sprinting, um, accelerations, decelerations. But the unique part, I suppose, about rugby is, is the collision element um, and, and the role that that plays. Um, 
the distances that these players cover at the elite level, um, the, the running I generally say is quite easy in terms of the distances. So you, you're talking in rugby league, you're probably talking about sort of, depending on position, anything between four to maybe six, 7,000 metres during a game of 80 minutes. Uh, rugby union tends to be slightly longer distance. Um, the interesting thing we factor in time, so the time uh, that they play for. So in rugby league, we have um, interchanges, so they can make um, 10 changes now from four players on a bench. Um, and in rugby league, there are less players, there are 13 on the field at one time. Rugby union has 15. But generally, the metres that are covered per minute of time uh, is slightly higher in rugby league. So we're talking probably around 85 to 90 metres per minute. Um, and in rugby union, probably a little bit lower than that, maybe about 65. Again, that varies depending on the position. Um, so, the slight, but as I said, the big challenge really is the running is relatively quite easy. It's the collision, the high intensity parts of the game that are, are the real sort of things that we're interested in from a, a fatigue point of view. Yeah, and we're, you know, because our focus here will be um, the monitoring of fatigue and recovery. Yeah. Um, and I think it's worth also, you know, for the benefit of everyone around the world is. Um, obviously different sports like football or soccer American football you know there, there's there's many types of intermittent sports that are out there but yeah. one big difference between say American football and rugby and I don't mean the wearing of helmets and pads and so on though is that um, there are stops and starts in some of these sports um, which in itself will play a major role in the recovery process whereas some like rugby, you know, it, it's sort of two halves, which is pretty intense, both of each half. Whereas, say, in American football, particularly in, um, you know, the uh, the top end sports, what we would call, excuse me, Premier League, you know, there are stops for things like commercial breaks. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps you could maybe get into the relevance of that. Um, um, the intermittent, the stopping and starting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, the... Those aspects of the game, the intermittent nature, are obviously um, it, it has an impact in terms of uh, the intensity. So, for example, with sports with multiple interchanges, so if we look at things like uh, hockey, uh, handball, uh, and the like, where they can make multiple interchanges at any time point during the game, what we tend to find is that um, these players, if I try to refer to uh, sort of when we look at the loads that are on these players there's an internal load so how the player responds individually and that that will be influenced by the um sort of physical qualities if you like and individual characteristics but then you've got an external load which is what the actually the player does so the speed that they run at etc in these intermittent sports where you've got unlimited interchange um or and lots of stopping and start. Generally, those players will run at a higher intensity. They tend to work a little bit harder. So the implication for that is that in their recovery, in their sort of acutely, it's going to be much. Uh, there's, there's a slightly different approach for the player that plays for a longer duration, um, in terms of the mechanisms that cause that fatigue in the days after. So, I think that has an impact in terms of, as, as you're describing, the, the intermittency of the sports has an impact in terms of the recovery that we'll see, the mechanisms that will cause the fatigue in the days that follow. So I think it's always useful to throw in a few definitions so that, you know, people, oh, well, we can conceptualise and or define a few things because people have, I mean, when we talk about fatigue, yeah. that brings all sorts of things to mind. I mean, what, what are we, or what are you talking about when you say fatigue? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, fatigue is, is, is a multifaceted um, component. I mean, the general definition is an, an inability to maintain a given force or power output. What we need to take into account, well, that, that may be more peripheral, so we're looking at the muscle tissues and ability of a muscle to contract and, and generate force. But obviously, there might be a more central component to that, so there's a psychological element to what we see. So those people are, there's a reduced willingness, so there's a reduced drive to the muscle. So the fatigue mechanisms that come as a consequence of playing the sports that we're interested in aren't necessarily peripherally oriented, you know, always you know, a depletion of um, substrates, 
Um, it could also, or dehydration, for example, it might just be simply a, a, a willingness or a lack of willingness to sort of exert that effort, so a more mental aspect to the fatigue, if you like. So if we try and sort of bro broadly conceptualise that as, 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 as the two aspects, well, that allows us then to try and understand how we monitor this uh, and, and the things that we might be interested in. Brilliant. And again, I, I would ask the same thing about recovery since we're going to talk about these. So, I mean, what, what do we, you know, what is meant by recovery in this context? Uh, re recovery is an interesting one because, it, again, it, you, you're hoping to have a, a baseline to, to return back to so that the athlete is ready or I like to think is it that they're prepared to do what is next and required of the next to be that training or competition. Um, now again that recovery could be um, sort of periphery orientated so um, you know, we return glycogen to a to required level to be able to go and train or compete. Likewise, there's a mental preparedness as well that the athlete is ready to go back into competition, is ready to deal with it. So again, from a recovery point of view, it would be interesting as, um, sort of understanding the both of those aspects because they will both impact on the way that the athlete performs. And again, it would be very different. You know, so if we take the athlete that plays in a, a tournament over a weekend, so we've done some work in that area with athletes that might play, you know, five games, six games in five days. Um, sometimes they're playing three or four games in a day. The recovery will be very different to the person that is playing or running a marathon. You know, the, the next race may be two to three months away. Um, so the, the focus might be for that person is the next training session. So again, recovery will be dependent on what the next event is going to be, be that training or competition. Yeah, and I'm, I'm pleased you said about training and competition. And we, I, I got into this a lot with Greg Haff when we were talking about periodization. And, of course, that, particularly for team sports, you know, we could simply be looking at a week where um, most days of the week there will be physical activity, but there's going to be a difference between being game ready um, and um, ready for training. Um, and, of course, the, I mean, I certainly saw this a lot in... Um, the club settings that I was in where I was trying to help from a nutritional perspective for fueling recovery that sort of thing and it can be quite a complex process because an individual needs to train um, you need to put them through a variety of stresses so that their adaptations makes them a better better athlete so that they perform better on game day but obviously therein lies some problems because um, particularly without monitoring, um, you don't know if that person really is actually going to end up on game day being under um, prepared or, or uh, exhausted. Um, I guess, you know, with the development of technology, and we'll get into this a bit more a bit later, but, you know, we are in a slightly different position to be able to monitor uh, what's going on with us. And of course, you don't have to be a professional athlete. Um, we're talking um, the average person now is using you know wristbands digital wearable technology or monitors on their phone to try and ascertain some of this stuff but I guess the bigger difference apart from maybe you know like triathletes for example recreational triathletes Ironman you know they've got a day job but mm -hmm. they are training basically like elite athletes um, but our professional rugby players football players and so on are being trained one way whether it's strength and conditioning skills training that sort of thing they might even like in football there's multiple matches per week mm -hmm. um and what i'm getting at is you know why you know why why do we need to be concerned with this i mean what what it, you know is it is it a question of over -sciencing? and i've discussed that with marco cardinali or do you feel, particularly as it relates, I guess, to elite sport, it, you know, is, is this really something that really is necessary? Very, very good question. And I, I think that's something that a lot of people now are starting to challenge and ask, you know, are we over-sciencing some of this? And, you know, because the technology is there, we, do we feel obliged to use it? Because we feel that, you know, a lot of clubs or organisations, you know, sports science has become an integral part of that now partly because of the number of graduates that were turning out. You know, sometimes and you know, there's a risk here that we, we feel justified, that we, you know, to justify our positions as sports scientists and our existence, we have to do things. 
so I think there's a really fine line here um, because what we need to try and do is to be able to you know make sure that we're, we're measuring and monitoring the right things and, and again that's really difficult because going back to my, the earlier point as academics were under pressure to produce papers and you know and the like and there's a risk that you know those papers to be good and to be in good journals need to have you know certain measures in them again it starts to lose the sort of applied real world focus so it's getting that balance right and understanding what's right so unfortunately we, we sometimes lose sight of that I think so I do think it's necessary um, and the risk that we're looking at now is um, you know a clear one will be injury um, in terms of ensuring that the athlete is we minimize any risk to injury um, that's not saying that we need to wrap them in cotton wool um, I'm sure most people um, or a lot of people will be familiar with the work of Tim Gabbert and the recent stuff he's been doing um, and you know athletes need to train hard you know we need to maintain you know um, sort of those qualities that they have to be able for them to be you know one robust enough to deal with what they do and that's any sport um, so we do not you know we've got to be careful we don't wrap them in cotton wool but at the same time we need to have you know progressive um, it's, it's the way we get them to those places that they need to be so the training needs to be progressive and that's where the monitoring comes in in terms of minimising that risk of injury um, I suppose the other side in some of the sports is that those athletes that the potential to do too much um, I, I don't think we see um, if, we, if we take too you know, we've got overreaching which is a short term sort of um, consequence of, of training and then where we go more on the longer scale of things is, is looking more at over overtraining or underperformance syndrome. I, I don't generally think we find those uh, over overtraining syndrome. I don't generally think we see that in, in team sports. Um, to be honest with you, because I don't think they what they do allows them to get to that sort of state. Overreaching, yes, um, and inappropriate training volumes that sort of you know spikes in training that cause injury. When we start to deal with athletes, for example, uh, endurance sports, um, that's where we do start to probably see an increased risk because of the training. They're not competing as regularly, maybe, so the training is a big emphasis of what they do. Um, so from that point of view, again, we want to minimise any potential you know, sort of health risk here. Um, you know, that, that, that we're trying to minimise that risk of overtraining. So again, from that point of view, uh, we do need to monitor those athletes. Again, I say that that needs to be the right type of monitoring that we choose. That again, it might be more individualised, but therefore it's a useful thing. The final one, really, I suppose, is that as, as practitioners are working with strength and conditioning coaches, and co we want to make sure that what we're doing is working. Um, so we have set targets to make sure that these athletes are, um, you know, improving. We we put a program in place. You mentioned, you know, periodisation. We put a plan in place. Well, we need to understand that if, if we consider it as a sort of dose response, so the dose is the actual exercise that they're doing or the, the game, the response um, can come in sort of two parts. There's a, there's a fitness, a sort of positive response from that, which is generally more long-lasting, and then there's a more sort of fatigue response, which is the acute response. Now, we need to know over a short period of time that sort of fatigue response from a single session or a, a single block of games but we also then need to know over a longer term is that what we're doing is actually working and we're getting towards an end point in, a, in a, an appropriate manner. So again, that would be my reasons for monitoring. There's, there's, there's three really there. Um, but generally, when we do that, we've got to make sure that we're picking the right things to monitor. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I'm a big believer in what I describe as test, don't guess. Um, um, I think if you know if we're not testing in one way or the other we you know we are guessing some of us are better at guessing than others but yeah i had this conversation well i did a podcast all about testing and not guessing with sean aaron dr sean aaron from rutgers university and um actually he came over uh, to a conference that i put on and gave a great lecture about something and and there was a phrase that he said that i think is a really good one which w was along the lines of uh you know, um, there is a situation where, yes, we can do it, but should we do it is another question we should ask ourselves. And I think if you start thinking about can we do it and should we do it, it gets very interesting. And, and, and what, what I mean by that is um, the ability to use a tool um, 
you know, it is an interesting one. Just because we know how to use a particular monitoring tool, it doesn't mean that we um, have expertise in the use of that tool. And, and the data that comes from that, how is that used? Who, 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 is it, who is that information informing? And that's where I think the information can be dangerous. Um, I mean, what, what do you feel? I mean, this kind of goes back to the over-sciencing thing. And I guess the analogy is um, I could give anyone a scalpel, but it doesn't make them a surgeon is kind of what I'm saying. Like, how do you feel about that concept? Um, I agree entirely. I mean, again, going back to, um, to some of the earlier points that I made, you know, we, we have a lot of drivers that push us. Um, you know, I've, I've mentioned, you know, for those of us that are involved in part of our, you know, our, our life in academia, there are drivers there. But we're also exposed to a lot of technology, um, you know, and in both the sort of new papers that come out that are pushing sort of different techniques and the pressures, I said, that we're under before to publish. Um, you've also got, you know, technology companies that are pushing that. So, you know, certainly young sports scientists come into this and they might say, oh, look, uh, X and Y use those measurements or I've read a paper on that. We need to get that into practice. So, and um, what you really need to, for me, is, is to understand the sport that you're dealing with. And, and if I could use the term, you know, what, what are the risks? What, what are the things that we're trying to make sure that we understand before you even start to consider what are the tools I'm going to take, you know, and the context that I'm in? The thing for me to, is to say, right, well, where do the issues come from in my sport? Um, I mean, you mentioned GPS before, and I'm sure we'll get onto this, but, you know, GPS came and it's been there. It's going to, you know, I've had discussions with people, will it stay around? You know, I, I see the pluses and the negatives with it now, and, you know, we, we continue to use it. Um, but for me, that came in, and we all jump on that bandwagon. Um, we get all the reliability and validity studies come out, and there'll be more as the, as the units go on. You know, football is now using it in matches, so I'm sure we're going to start to see more and more papers. I think the first one I saw came out a couple of weeks ago, which was inevitable, really. But with that, people are using it because everybody else is using it and then it's a matter of well actually can it measure what we really want it to measure and you know certainly we're starting to look at that now and when you look at your sport that you deal with will that tool provide you with relevant you know yes we need accurate and we need consistent measurements but is it measuring the things that I need as a you know in that environment to inform my athlete that you know you're doing too much or you're not doing enough um, we need to do this as a consequence of these aspects of your training. That's the sort of questions we need to ask before we jump on that bandwagon. So yes, in terms of what you're saying, I do have a, a strong view on we need to be very, very careful with the tools. that we, we need to understand the actual sport, first of all, and the mechanisms of fatigue, recovery, before we even start you know, jumping on tools. Again, because I think simply they get pushed on us because of pressures that come from externally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Because what we're measuring in terms of, say, maximal performance in the lab is not the same thing as maximal performance on the pitch, is it? No, no. And again, moving away from, you know, we all, we all need that. You know, I'd expect that from anybody that works with me or that's going to go into practice, they've got a good grounding in the science and they're well aware of, you know, the under, and they've got some experience in terms of measurements in those sort of more, if you like, sterile environments within, in those labs. But what you really, if you want to work in practice, you've got to get out there and, and, and notice that there are real differences, like you said, and that's, that's just one example. But some of the data that we collect, uh, you know, the psychological well-being data, for example, it's very nice when you collect it in a nice sterile, sterile environment, but then put that into a professional environment where you've got, you know, 23, you know, uh, 25, so, sorry, uh, professional young male athletes, you know, 20... 19 to sort of 30 years of age you know trying to use that data and get anything meaning from it you know it, it, it's so varied so again it, it's understanding the tools that you've got and being able to apply them you know in a real world and, and again a very individual approach probably to what you know what we've been trained as a sports scientist you know we look at average data and standard deviation we take that that looks very nice in a paper and in sort of dissertations but what you've got to do then is, is be able to take the individual aspects of that data and be able to you know, use it and interpret it accordingly. So um, I think it's quite clear you know, why we would want to monitor 
training load you you know we discussed implications for training and training adaptations performance illness you know all that sort of thing but um when you read about this like in your papers and um some of the reviews I'll, i'll put links to all these in the show notes um but we see this um described also as 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 there being a difference between internal versus external load. What, what, what is meant by that? Yeah. Um, external load is typically what we would probably consider to be the things that we're interested in. So the distance that the athlete covers, for example. So, you know, if we look at professional football, soccer, you know, generally 10 to 12 kilometres are covered during the game. The number of sprints, the peak speed that they get to, the number of collisions that the, the athlete does. Uh, the average running speed over the course of a, of a marathon. You know, those are the sorts of things that we, we generally consider external load. So that's what the athlete actually did. Um, the internal load um, is how the athlete responded. Um, now, generally, that would be things like, you know, on a sort of simple level, heart rate, um, blood lactate concentration, uh, oxygen cost, um, energy consumption, those would typically be the internal. Now, they will obviously be influenced by the individual characteristics. So, for example, if you take two athletes that run at, um, um, let's say, 14 kilometres an hour, however, one athlete has a VO2 max of, um, let's say, 65 mils per kilogram per minute, another athlete has at the same as 55. Relatively speaking, they are running at okay. It's the same speed, the same oxygen cost, but it's the same different percentage of their maximum capacity. So that internal response, while we might all run at the same speed, the internal load, how the athlete responds to that, um, it could be very different. Yeah, I mean, I oh, there's some different angles here, but I guess we should quickly discuss how you actually monitor external load um, before we get into the I find the internal load stuff particularly interesting but yeah. how, I mean how do we how do we actually monitor external load um, I, I suppose I've mentioned GPS I'll come to that in a second I, I suppose on a, on a simple level um, a, a lot of the previous workers use video analysis uh, time motion or TMA as it's referred to um, which is probably, I mean, you, you can go back to the work, and I, I know there's um, sort of probably dating this, but sort of, you know, Tom Riley, uh, people like that early work, where they, you know, they use time motion analysis to study uh, the movement demands in, in football. Um, and basically that was, you know, sometimes watching and watching video and using sort of pitch markings to quantify the distances and the speeds um, that these people cover. Um, we've seen a development of that over recent years where we saw introduction of things like ProZone, uh, which is a camera-based system which a lot of the professional uh, football clubs over here have now. Um, that has a sampling frequency of up to about 25 hertz and it uses colours and pixels um, on a video, so it's done post the event. Um, and again, it uses that, it pixelates the pitch and there's um, four cams, I think, that are positioned that basically cover the whole pitch. That again allows us to quantify movement um, of, the, of, the, of the athlete. And there are similar systems for other sports. Uh, handball, I've seen some where they've got cameras suspended underneath it, within the actual sort of playing arena that again do a similar thing. Um, so, and it, it works with a computer system to quantify the, the distances and the speeds that these athletes covered, cover. Um, what we've had in sort of last 10, 15 years is the emergence of GPS. Um, I suppose most sort of triathletes you mentioned before but are familiar with things like Garmin uh, and the like, which again is a similar technology. Polar have that now that's a, a GPS that allow you to quantify using satellite technology. There's 27 orbiting satellites. Uh, basically allows there's a, an atomic clock that's on the satellite that's synced with a clock on the GPS unit. And that basically working off the time delay and the, and the movement to be able to quantify the actual movements, the distances that these that your athlete covers. In team sports, in particular, and rugby, we've seen a real emergence in this. And certainly, the last ten years of, of the use of this. That um, apparently, again, this is only hearsay, but the New Zealand were one of the first teams that were using it uh, quite extensively, but under the radar, as it were, because it hadn't been given um, IRB sanction. But again, that's. We don't really know, but they were using it quite early on. 
now there was a law dispensation in rugby union uh, and in rugby league it's again it's been cut, it's been used fairly regularly and what you will see if you watch most games now uh, on a, on on sky on sport you'll see the a little box that's positioned between the shoulder blades or a small underneath the shirt or in most cases now they're actually positioned in the shirt pockets are actually built into the shirts um, and what these do is they're in a position there with a satellite and the receiver that's in the box. And what that does is, again, it allows you to move, uh, quantify the movements that these athletes are, are doing. Um, so, again, that, that's become, as I say, fairly prominent now. The, the good thing with GPS is that you can actually um, you can use it in training and in matches. Um, in football, for example, up so fairly recently, you can use it in training. Um, matching the camera system against the GPS, generally we find that the the GPS uh, gives different sort of distances when you compare it to a camera system. That's probably to do with the sampling frequencies. Um, with GPS at the minute, we're probably up to uh, 15 hertz um, is the highest system, although that's probably one of the least reliable for other reasons I can go into if, if you want me to. But basically, the, the system that most people work is, is at 10 hertz now, and we can quantify the movements on a, on a sampling frequency with that. Yeah, I, you know, I... I mean, I've mentioned this in other podcasts. I, I'm personally one of those sort of super gadget fans. I love electronic digital devices. I mean, you name it, I've pretty much got it. Um, but it really is interesting how this is influencing the growth and and development of the sports science profession. And by growth, I mean, in the UK alone, it's huge, isn't it? There are large numbers of people signing up for graduate degrees in sports analysis and yeah. that sort of thing. And, um, you know, in the old days, the only people that used to got to play around with sort of high-tech gadgetry would have been, I guess, air traffic controllers and NASA-type <laughs> people. But this, 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 our field of sports science is super tech-techy tech, now, isn't it? Yeah, moving along at a pace. And again, I was saying before, that, that's one of the issues for us because, you know, new technology comes out and... I think with the GPS in particular, if we sort of focus on that, um, not only now have you got obviously the movement kit, the GPS that's in there, you also have uh, accelerometers, um, uh, gyroscopes and magnetometers. Now, the, the accelerometers are very much like the accelerometers that you can wear on your hip. Um, these are generally triaxial, so you're getting uh, the movements in three axes. Um, these generally tend to be you know, again, it's a useful addition to the sort of information we're collecting in terms of accelerations and decelerations. Um, the magnetometers and the, is a basically a directional tool that's in there. We don't really know, well, we haven't done a lot of work with that and sort of not used extensively. And then um, and within that, then you're able to sort of give some, there's an inclinometer as well, so you can look in at the sort of body lean and position. Um, there are some studies that have actually looked at things like you know um, sort of stride patterns that you can use a GPS and, and using it for measuring of jumping. So it's not just a running tool, um, but when they're combined with that box and that you can sync it with heart rate as well, you, you've got quite a powerful little box there that can do quite a lot. That you know maybe sort of 20 years ago it was you know you were just looking at on a video screen and you were watching somebody run up and down, you know, and you were doing one player at a time. Now you can do multiple players, so we're doing work with you know where we can measure sort of you know 20 30 players at one time, um, in studies or in, in actual in the field. And you know, when you can feed it back to a laptop at the side of the field where you're getting real time information on you know the speed of the drill that you're working at or the speed of the practice, the types of things that they're doing, you know, it's really powerful information that you can make decisions there and then. Um, you know, some would argue you might be taking away the element of coaching, but that little bit of information, I know that you know some people do use that. You know, if we've got players, for example, that are on a, we want to limit the amount of work that they're doing. Um, we've got that technology now that whereby they're running uh, or they're doing the training that we want them to do. We can keep an eye on them, and when when they get to a certain threshold, we can make a decision and say, right, okay, let, let's bring them away from that training now. Um, because we, we don't want them. So again, if you go back to Gabbard's model of this acute and chronic workload, you might make the decision that the athlete has, has got to a threshold for that day, and we, we might just want to sort of you know just cut back a little bit rather than sort of risk injuring them. Again, that's really powerful when you you know you can get that information fairly quickly 
rather than just relying either on gut and gut instinct or having to wait post hoc and download a video and go through it. So yeah, it is powerful, and it's you know that technology is there now. As I say, in the right context, we need to embrace it. Yeah, now there's no doubt we know a hell of a lot more now, and like I said. Um, there's a difference between what we see in the lab and what we see on the pitch, but actually we're now starting to see what happens on the pitch. But of course, that that actually gets interesting, doesn't it? Because we start to realise that what we thought was happening wasn't happening at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I suppose in terms of the running and, and things like that, when you look at GPS and you're able to quantify and look at differences in you know between positions, so you can quantify whether you're training. Um, that you know, you've put in place is right. So we now know that, you know, for example, in the positional differences, some work that we did in rugby league, we looked at pacing strategies, um, and we felt that because of this interchange, you know, these players that go on are told that they're only going to go on and do a short bout, so twenty minutes on average, and they take a very different approach to the game in terms of the running, as would be a whole game player. Now, up to now, we didn't really have that information. Um, and again, it, it was very difficult to glean. So what that allows us to do is that we know these players that are going on for sh- very short durations need a, a different training approach to the player that plays the whole game. Um, so we can then start to individual our training a little bit differently um, based on you know what we know from the pitch and what we've got from game data now. And we can also start to look at, you know, in quite large data sets as well, um, some of the previous studies that used video were quite limited. Um, but again, things like ProZone have sort of emerged with that. The GPS now allows us to look at the game data and match data combined to say that, look, what we do in a game, we can then go and replicate and make sure that we're doing in training. Um, again, going back to some work in rugby, you know, we want training not to be, you know, we want them to be able to cope with the training. But we also need them to be able to deal with what we call a worst case scenario. So what's the worst thing that a player could do? Again, with the GPS and some of the, certainly advanced sort of video stuff, we can find what, you know, we don't want players under, you know, underprepared. We want to make sure that we understand what's the worst thing that player could do. And then we can, get, we can expose them to that in terms of training to make sure that one, they're physiologically capable of doing it, but and, and also robust enough to withstand any sort of potential risk for injury. Sure. And, um, of course, we can't be talking about external load methods, with monitoring methods without internal. And, yeah. I, I mean, I, as I said, I find this area particularly interesting. Um, but I know it's quite a broad area. Maybe we don't have time to cover all of them. But of, of the methods of monitoring internal load, w- w- which are the ones that, um, you know, are most prominent um, and most useful, in your opinion? Interesting question in terms of prominence and... and, and uh, and useful. Um, I, I suppose the most common one we see is heart rate. Well, sorry, not common. The, the one we're, more, we're all probably most familiar with is heart rate. Um, obviously, we're getting sort of responses there in terms of um, cardiovascular response. And typically, when we look at training and, and sort of again that dose response, we should all be familiar you know, what's the sort of heart rate response that I would get from a certain sort of run or, or a sort of training session that I do. Um, in terms of average heart rate, um, it's fairly limited because we're just getting one sort of figure. Um, we have seen, obviously, well-established measures like TRIMPS, so training impulse, um, which basically combines the resting, the peak, and the heart rate for the duration. Um, that factors in um, a coefficient which is based on the lactate response to exercise, so the curvilinear response. And what that does, it gives you an overall sort of load in arbitrary values, um, again, based on that heart rate. So a trim value of, say, 200 um, is less, you know, is lower, so it means lower training load compared to a trim value of 208. You then obviously need to sort of consider with that is that that's, again, probably more dedicated to sort of steady state exercise. When we start to look at intermittent type exercise, you have variants of that. So there's Edwards's TRIMP, which basically looks at heart rate in different zones and multiplies it by a weighting factor. So uh, heart rate in sort of 50 to 60% of maximum will get a weighting of one, whereas a heart rate between 90 and 100% of max will get a weighting of five. When you take that for a session and combine it, you again get a um, arbitrary value 
which you're able to quantify that internal load. That type of measurements, and there's the eye trimp as well, which is a, again uses a lactate sort of an individualized lactate value to sort of standardize the data. Th those give us some useful data. The limitations are that generally the things like you do get some variability about five to six percent day to day in heart rate. So again, you, that that's an issue. Um, dehydration, obviously, so for, you know that will affect the heart rate response. And the other that we find quite often is that. If you look at a lot of the rugby studies, you, you get a lot of data on external load, so GPS, because the players will wear that. What we're finding is that the internal load is very, very difficult to get because they hate wearing heart rate monitors. They, and it's surprising me, these guys get smashed around for 80 minutes um, and they'll have a box on the back, but they won't have a heart rate monitor on. They find it quite restrictive. So we don't tend to have a lot of data on heart rate. Um, and that's why it's the, they just don't find it comfortable. Um, so. It's a useful measure, and I really like heart rate. Um, and as I said, there's various ways of quantifying that. Um, but it's just, as I said, there are some limitations. But again, I think it's a useful measure. The other one that has taken some is a lot of interest that is used, I would say, fairly consistently now is, is perception of effort, and particularly the session RPE, which was developed by uh, Carl Foster um, and colleagues. And basically, it's an alternative to, to those um, sort of heart rate measures, and it's based on the individual's perception, um, and it's a post-exercise measure. Um, so it's based on a scale of 0 to 10, with 10 being the hardest that they can work for, and you multiply that by the uh, time that the athlete was exercising for. Um, it's a real useful measure because I, I, I like it for a number of reasons. One, you can use it with things like resistance training or skills-based training, um, and you, you're getting the similar measures. Um, and generally, you find that um, the athletes sort of, you know, they're not having to wear anything. It's just you're getting the rating. And typically, you're asking athletes 20 to 30 minutes after. The reason for that is that we don't want the athlete to rate the sort of final point of the exercise. So if it was like an end spurt or something like that, they would generally sort of anchor to that. So by giving them a bit of a time delay afterwards, um, although there are a couple of studies now that have shown it doesn't really matter if it's 10, 20 or 30 minutes afterwards, you generally get um, to give you a rating between 0 and 10 and then you multiply that by the time that the athlete was exercising for and you get an individualised, again, in arbitrary values in terms of the load. The challenges we find with that is that, again, in terms of the, the when it's been validated, it's been validated against things like heart rate, um, and blood lactate so there's no criterion value to say that that and we know from studies that have been done that session RPE is influenced by a number of things so what informs one person's perception might be very different so it could be the distance that you cover um, the the number of impacts that you've been involved in could influence your perception of effort um, we know from some of the nice work from Sam McCorder and Aaron Coops that we you know mental fatigue will alter your perception so there are there are a number of issues there that affect the sort of validity for and again not having something to compare it against. However, I do you know personal opinion and based on my use of it, I do like it as a measure because as I say it, you can combine it with other markers as well. So sorry, you can combine a number of types of session where your know, heart rate's not much good for resistance type sessions. But by having the, the session RPE, you can then get blocks of, you know, we did a weight session in the morning followed by a running session in the afternoon. And by combining that, you get an overall load for that day. Um, I would still say, though, that you know, based on experience and what the literature is telling us, I, I don't think you can get away from having just session RP on its own. I do think you know, you certainly need an external load measure to understand what's going on, um, what's causing that response. And you do need to be aware of the issues with the, those subjective measures. But for me, it's, it's a really useful uh, measure. Yeah, and they're great. And, you know, I always, when I'm thinking about these things, when we talk about using this with teams, um, you know, a football team, a rugby team, um, all sorts of teams, it's a group of people, but they're individuals. Um, and there's going to be one issue that crops up for me when I think about this, which is, you know, they're individuals with inter and intra-individual variability, what, I mean, how does that potentially influence how we should interpret the use of this stuff? 
Um, it, it's, it has a huge bearing on you know what we do, certainly in team sport environments where you know training can be quite generic, so they're all doing very much the same thing. So again, from that point of view, the, the external load probably won't, wouldn't tell you a lot in terms of how the, the individual has responded. So if we're looking to look consider, well, you know, I, I need X athlete, X athlete to have gone through this amount of load that we get the adaptation that we're interested in. Um, if they're all running at the same intense running external load, as it were, what we need to understand is the individual response in terms of how that you know how that athlete responded, and with respect to their sort of um, individual characteristics, so their physical quality. So, on that level, things like heart rates are extremely useful, um, and session RP. But again, I, I would reiterate, you know, it is important to understand the individual responses. Otherwise, how do you interpret the adaptation? How do you interpret the fatigue that follows that? So when when we're you know doing our monitoring, um, we're going to observe changes, um, and I mean again I I discussed this with Marco Cardinali a bit. This idea of not being over obsessed with marginal gains. I mean, it, it, sure it's additive, but if we look at the bigger picture, there's lots of things these guys need as individuals. Some need to spend more time on fitness. Some need to you know sort out some sort of recovery. Uh, uh, strategy some may need to focus more on skills but collectively um, how how do we use this these monitoring technologies from the perspective of assessing meaningful change I mean how do we how, how do we know this stuff's meaningful in the in the context of say a season okay so um, we've probably talked more about sort of the sort of dose at the moment so the, the training level but in terms of the recovery side of things mm. um, some of the measures there that were interested probably useful to give the sort of listeners some context. So once the athlete has, you know, we've we've given them a training dose, so be that a running session or training session, it's then the response that we're interested in. Now the response can be measured in a number of ways. So things like you know well-being questionnaires. We can look at some you know biochemical hormonal markers, um, and then things like neuromuscular function. What we need to understand really is that again to make judgments on whether that athlete has, has responded sufficiently or in the way or has responded you know, inappropriately to what we're after is to understand sort of individual responders to those, um, to the, the measures that we're taking. And, and I think in the past we've sort of used arbitrary cutoffs of so a 5% change, a 10% change. And again, these are probably meaningless to be honest with you. They, they don't really tell us a lot about that individual because 5% for one, might be you know quite a normal response, for, but for other person it might be quite a, a severe response. So I think what we need to understand is individual sort of the reliability data, and we've we've got the use of things like uh, magnitude-based inferences now that are with us, and you know why that it, it, it's take, you know it seems to be fairly well established now within sort of the applied literature. Um, moving that into a context of the applied environments is something we need to sort of be pushing. Um, so again, looking at individual scores based on individuals' reliability and what we would consider to be a smallest worthwhile change and understanding that. So again, the statistics, you can go and read Will Hopkins, Alan Batram's work about that, but basically understanding what's a normal change and then understanding what is beyond beyond that sort of normality, if you like, of a, a change. So what is a small, what is a moderate, what is a large change? But that, that requires you to understand your data and requires you the measurements that you're choosing is to know you know how reliable those are. So again, what we tend to do is get some clubs to do. You know, we we run small in-house reliability studies on the measurements that we're using, and then know what a real change in that measurement is. So by doing and that, that that to me is the job of a sports scientist. When you're in that environment, those are the sort of little things that you do. You put those together. You know, and for each individual, you know what the a normal change is for that person. So that when you come to make a judgment. You're making it on some actual data rather than just as, as I say, an arbitrary cutoff of oh, it changed by five or two percent. So, you know, we've covered sort of all sorts of angles here, and obviously, folks are going to need to read the papers that I link to to get a, a, a sort of a more in-depth view. And there's some great um, papers that um, um, that I've looked at, including uh, the one by yourself on monitoring fatigue and recovery in rugby league, but also another great 
reviewed by Shona Halson from 2014. Yeah. And there was a section in there that I found interesting. And it's not, I mean, I've never really gotten into this area other than individual monitoring, which I do a lot of. Um, but obviously, you're acquiring a lot of data. Um, and um, in there, she's referring to utilizing a system systems-based approach to managing this. I mean, I think when I looked around a bit before we did this podcast, I did notice there's a number of software systems. There's, um, you know, for triathletes, for example, they'll be used to something called training peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in in um, the rugby area, I know there's a number of systems there. I mean, what, what are your feelings about these sort of packages, um, maybe removing some of the... Um, responsibility for the individual to manage the data and shoving it into a into a software package that maybe takes some of that away from the scientist or the coach. I mean, how do you feel about these these packages and utilising a systems based approach? Um, I, I think in terms of the packages, I, I am I, I, we use them. But again, I, I, I'd use them with some caution because I still think you need that person to interpret the data. And there's a risk, again, I think, of, you know, us hiding behind spreadsheets and mm. these data is that, you know, there's, there's nothing. As Anna saw from um, Deakin University did some really nice work on sort of subjective measures and, you know, just asking an athlete how they are, you know, and finding out that sort of information, the subjective side of it, you know, can make a hell of a difference in terms of your decision. So, if we start to hide behind these software, and don't get me wrong, we use some at the moment, um, and I'm familiar with a couple of systems, and the training peaks one that you mentioned, and they are really good systems. They're, they're really useful for collecting data and pulling data together, um, certainly from a research point of view, if you're doing that sort of thing, but on an applied level as well, you know, keeping that data together. But when you start getting flags and that come through into the flagging up uh, certain athletes that are fatigued, that it doesn't tell you why it doesn't tell you you know what's going on in that person's life what you know so there needs to be a level you know when you interpret that you need to understand that aspect too so it's just not relying on some red flag that comes up on your mobile phone that athlete b is you know is fatigued whatever that definition of fatigue is in that system you know you need to be able to go and interpret that um and i think for me is that while they can allow you to collect a lot of data at once and keep an eye on you know in a custom-built system, um, and as I say, that you know some of these systems now are factoring in some of the things, you know, the session RPE and the training load data, um, and looking at these spikes in data, which I think are really useful. You know, if you haven't got a person that's you know a, a real stats or um, computer whiz that's working with you, I can really see the benefits of that um, and having that system there. Um, but it still requires somebody to interpret it and make sense of it. And that's the thing that I would stress is you, you can't hide behind those, you know, that, that software. You need to then be able to detect the numbers and actually do something with it. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I think too often people use these gadgets and because it's got nice, you know, graphs and charts and, you know, blue this and red that, we take it a little bit too factual. And, you know, it is important that one understands how to use one's tools in the same analogy I presented earlier, you know, you you, you 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 could give me a scalpel, um, but frankly, that's not going to make me a surgeon. That would make me a murderer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, so the other thing, you know, yeah. is a scalpel the right tool? Yeah, exactly. You know, yes. because the thing is that we we look at a lot of these systems, and you know, you look at them, and we've got a number of tools monitoring, like sort of the recovery side of things. So, you know, you you have, as I mentioned before, you got neuromuscular data. So, but how do you know those tests that you've got in that system are the right tests? How do you know that you know well-being questionnaire that you're using is sensitive enough? You know, so a lot of the clubs now that we work with have moved away from the traditional sort of POMS, um, the REST uh, 72, um, and the DOLDA scales, which are you know quite well established in the literature as athlete um, monitors because they're just too cumbersome. You know, there's you know, 72 questions. You, you're unlikely to get an athlete to want to fill that in. Yeah. on a regular basis so a lot of these clubs now have revised back down to sort of very five simple questions on a Likert scale of you know five being feel very good one being I don't uh, and those athletes are using them or they're using those but again you need to make sure that you've 
that, that you might want more sensitive information because again they might those questions those five questions might not pick up so it goes back to making sure that you've got the right tools yeah. in that sort of um in that toolkit or that, that software the right information is going in in the first place yeah no i completely agree that's why right at the beginning i made a point of saying you know using sports nutrition as an example is we still need to understand elements of exercise physiology and um, you know strength and conditioning periodization the stuff that we've talked about today because that helps us understand the relevance of our role within that team or individual setting and also you know when to and when not to get involved Um, you know there's a lot of stuff for people to learn I guess if you go back 10 well 20 years um, I guess it was easier in some ways um, because they, I mean this is this has gotten pretty technical now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but listen, um, you know, there's there's obviously more we could we could get into, but we're we're out of time. But perhaps we could end with just a really super quick summary by yourself, uh, a conclusion, if you like, on maybe just a, you know the sort of the biggest in your mind what the pros are and then what the cons or red you know cautions would be so that folks could could end this podcast with sort of a nice idea as to maybe uh you know where they should should be taking this i think the first thing is that you need to know the sport that you're dealing with and and where the risks i use the term risks you know what are the risks that you need to know so that is what are the, the key demands what are the you know the key elements that are going to lead to fatigue or injury or you know what are you looking to do in terms of getting those athletes to adapt? What what do you need from the athletes? And then as I said, what are the risks? And that's that's the first thing you need to do. You then need to think about okay, I need to, monitoring is useful, um, but I need to make sure that I have the right tools to do that and, and what I need. So if you really need to you know don't be driven by you know what you obviously need to understand the literature, but try and make sure that you've got the right tools based on. You know the research. So are they are they valid? Are they reliable measurements? Um, particularly with the population you're working with, and do they provide me with the information that I need? Once you've established that, then I think it's about putting it into practice. Um, understanding, as I said, the reliability of the measures that you're using, both in terms of um, measuring the dose, as I described it, so the actual exercise you're doing, but then importantly is the response to that dose. Now you've got the fitness response, but then in particular the sort of fatigue response which we sort of touched on. Again, knowing the right tools, but the important part is making a right judgment on that data. So understanding what is a small, moderate, large change and whether that's what you're after. I also think that an important thing is that you know once you've established the right you know tools, and it's then your ability to use that and, and be able to communicate that effectively with the coach to make decisions on and that's a real part isn't you you have to educate coaches and athletes on why you're doing this and if you can do that and you can get you know, they won't necessarily always be on board but if you can try to work towards that and try to make them realize why you're doing that and that's a big part of what you will do it's generally you know my motto is try and try and keep things simple without over complicating it uh, from an unapplied level but make sure that you're giving them the right information and I say, once you can get those coaching athletes on board understanding why you're doing that, hopefully you'll start to see a benefit of your, your, the overall monitoring process. Excellent. Well, listen, Craig, um, it's been awesome to have you on and share your, your knowledge in this. Um, it, I think, you know, this is an area that it'll be fascinating to see how this grows and develops over time um, with the development of technology. I'm particularly keen to see technology to allow us to assess glycogen availability and depletion for me that would be the ultimate um but i realize we're a little bit away from that but um if folks want to learn more about you and your research and so on do you uh, do you do research gate and that sort of thing yeah I'm re- research gate i'm on the so great uh, and then obviously you can just look at the sort of i'm on twitter so i keep on people can I generally try and keep up to date with stuff that we're doing and sort of stuff that interests me on twitter as well well i'll link to your research gate on the um podcast page but just tell us your twitter uh ID. um at craig underscore twist great and i'll include that when i tweet 
the podcast. Um, and uh, for, for those that um, um, want to come and learn from you at Chester, University of Chester, um, what, what, what sort of programs are you involved in teaching? Uh, yeah, we have a, the, the main one that I'm involved in is our uh, Masters in Sport and Exercise Science. So again, it, it takes a very applied, pro, applied approach and we have a, a lot of links with um, understandably some rugby clubs that we, we do work with and we place students there. Um, we also have links with uh, EIS, English Institute of Sports, um, and other various sort of um, bodies. One of the things I always say to students is that sometimes it, they also work at the elite end. I think you can actually learn a lot more and have a lot more autonomy when you work sub-elite initially, mm-hmm. um, particularly because you, you're not generally, you know, if you're under the guidance of you know a sports scientist who's sort of advising you, in those situations where you're in a professional environment, you're probably given less... Um, Less, less free reign um, and, and might not learn, you'll learn things but not as much. So I never say never give up the opportunity to work at a sort of sub-elite level maybe initially and we, again we have some opportunities there with sort of local clubs and or certainly around the northwest of England that we can, uh, that again students get a lot from. Yeah I, yeah, I mean there's a reason why we don't learn to drive in a sport, in a racing car isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, great. So, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you for the invite. No, my my pleasure. We'll get you on again when there's developments in this area for sure. Um, and for folks that want to learn more about um, this particular podcast, uh, I'll put all the links and um, reference to papers and so on, um, which you can find at guruperformance.com. If you want to learn more about our continuing professional development program in exercise science and performance nutrition, you can find out about that at guruperformance.com, as well as our postgraduate diploma program in applied sport and exercise nutrition. And if you want to come and learn um, and get an MSc in sport and exercise nutrition, you can do that with me at uh, Middlesex University. Again, just go to guruperformance.com where you can find out information but um, that brings us to the end and I of course am Laurel Bannock and we'll bring um, another podcast to you all very soon.